This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Greg Jarrett. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm David Asman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, August 22nd, 2022, on Mike Emanuel. Before leaving town to campaign, Democrats passed a massive tax and spending package called the Inflation Reduction Act, which critics say won't live up to the sales pitch. But Democrats disagree, saying they're confident they can sell the legislation to their constituents. This bill is going to save millions of people an average of about $800 a year. So there's a lot of things that we're going to see immediately, and we need to be talking about it. I'm Chris Foster. A convicted bank robber, now attorney and advocate for people in prison, says we can do better. Let's make sure those programs are aligned, not to just a reduction of negative attributes, but to the adoption of positive attributes that we want to see people be able to practice inside prisons. And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Ahead of critical midterms that will decide the balance of power in Congress for the next two years, New York Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis says a GOP-led House will have a major impact in Washington. In the majority, we'll have much more leverage and we'll be able to hold the majority accountable and all these agencies where they have failed to do their jobs. A massive failure, according to Republicans, is the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Congressman Michael Waltz represents Florida. Here we are a year later with Americans still left behind, our allies being hunted down. Girls can't go to school. Women can't go to work. There's a mass famine. And the biggest piece is Al-Qaeda is back. Before lawmakers left town to campaign, Democrats passed a bill they labeled the Inflation Reduction Act, a bill investing $369 billion in energy security. President Biden says the tax component of the bill will help the nation's bottom line. This fiscal year, we're going to cut the deficit point out by another $300 billion with the Inflation Reduction Act over the next decade. We're cutting deficits to fight inflation by having the wealthy and big corporations finally begin to pay part of their fair share. But Republicans note with Americans paying a lot more at the grocery store and the gas station, voters did not want more massive government spending. Congressman James Comer of Kentucky is the top Republican on the House Oversight Committee. It's not going to play well. Uh, it's a joke that it's called the Inflation Reduction Act because we know that more government spending leads to more inflation. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has said the Inflation Reduction Act will have a negligible effect on inflation through next year. I think we got to be very clear about what is in it and people are, are going to see some things immediately. Debbie Dingell is a Democrat representing Michigan in Congress. We are, it addresses our energy supply and while none of us is happy where the cost of gasoline is vis-a-vis -vis where it's been, it continues to go down each day and I hope that it's going to stay there. It is going to lower the cost of prescription drugs and it's going to cap out-of-pocket costs at $2,000. Um, an immediate effect 
that would have happened if this hadn't happened would have been the Affordable Care Act and what the cost of insurance would have been to people. And this bill is going to save millions of people an average of about $800 a year. So there's a lot of things that we're going to see immediately, and we need to be talking about it. And by the way, we need to be comparing ourselves to the Republicans who like to take a lot of shots but haven't offered any solutions. Question for you. Uh, obviously, you got something very big done on a party line basis. Um, do the American people really want that? I mean, if the shoe were on the other foot and Republicans were pushing something through with just Republican votes, does that play well back home or do people get irritated and say Washington may not be working for me? Okay, so this is me that you're talking to. As you well know, I work across the aisle. Mm -hmm. uh, I have many friends across the aisle, and I try to work with people across the aisle. Right now, there are more people that want to vote against things instead of sitting down at the table, finding common ground and finding solutions. I don't like where we are. I remember when the Congress was functional, congressmen coming together. Compromise is not a dirty word. So I think it's always better when people of different perspectives, different life experiences sit down at a table, find that common ground. But right now, there are more people that want to just vote no on anything or because it's an idea by the other party aren't open to passing it. And look at what happened to a number of the Republican senators who just tried to come up with a compromise on guns, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, did pass both houses, and they got demonized by the party. I don't think that's good for this country. So I don't like it when we all are, I'm not going to support something because so-and-so is a Democrat and they did it, or I'm not going to support something because they're a Republican. We need to look at what the solutions are and be working together more for the American people. Okay, to foreign policy, it's been a little over a year since the Taliban has seized Kabul, and though Americans are trying to provide aid to the country, it's proven difficult given the Taliban's total control. What are your thoughts about the current situation in Afghanistan and how the capital has transformed in just a year? Look, uh, I'm devastated by all of it. And what worries me the most is how much time I spent with many of the women and the younger women. And there is no doubt that the Taliban's new authority presents a really serious challenge to human rights and most particularly the rights of women and girls. 90% of the Afghans have been struggling with food insecurity for the past year. We've got to. We've got a humanitarian responsibility to alleviate this hunger crisis and look at the issue of women and children as well. And we got to continue to support our Afghan allies. we got an, a moral obligation to do that. I'm sure you're making your way around your district here at this critical time ahead of the midterm elections. Um, if you run into a young veteran of the Afghan war and he or she says to you, I'm concerned my service wasn't worth it because I look at the mess there in Afghanistan. What do you tell them? Well, first of all, I tell them I'm the Vietnam generation. This country treated our veterans from the Vietnam War, the men and women that were of my, I was at the tail end of that generation, their service was worth it. And we gave hope to a lot of people and we still have a moral obligation to the people of Afghanistan, but we need to always 
salute and thank and remember the men and women who fight for our democracy and fight for people around the world uh, for very important reasons. And I try to make sure that they always know how appreciated they are, what they did, the difference they made in people's lives, and that we will always be there for them. Okay, so we've got midterm elections coming up in November. I'm curious, as you travel the district, as you visit with folks in the great state of Michigan, what the big issues are that are connecting with them. My guess is inflation, perhaps the situation at the border, perhaps the crime crisis in some major American cities. But I'm curious what you're hearing out and about with the good folks in Michigan. Well, as you know, I love my district because it's a very diverse district and reflects the diversity of this country. So I have areas that supported President Trump and I have areas that very strongly support President Biden and are even more progressive. Anybody that doesn't understand that for the average working man and woman, inflation continues to be front and center at the cost of gasoline uh, and the cost of food and just everyday prices. Uh, you are seeing some relief. I have people telling me they're selling their cars. They're very worried about it. And we got to continue to address that. But the other issue in Michigan, which I can't decide in a given day, which issue is right at the top is women's health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very emotional issue. Uh, I don't care what party you are. It's a very personal decision. And Many women and men cannot believe that six people made a decision about what they can do with their own body. And that will be a deciding issue in Michigan as well this November. Interesting. Okay, so you think uh, abortion rights may be a top issue for for many, many people as they go to the polls in November. Fascinating. Yeah, I think what we saw in Kansas was indicative of I like to call it personal uh, women's health care. I think this is a tough issue. Uh, it will be on the ballot in Michigan. And I think that that question on the ballot will be like it was in Kansas and will be a very important factor in the November election. Conventional wisdom here in Washington is that we could end up with a Republican-led House and a Democrat-led Senate. Um, Does that work? Could it work? Would it be a move to the Senate to try to get some things done? Or does that predict two years of gridlock? And obviously, we'll let the voters decide who they want to lead, whatever. I'm not making any bold predictions, but that's kind of the conventional wisdom here in Washington. It may be right. It may be wrong. But if it's true, I wonder how it plays out. So I'm going to start addressing it the way you just finished doing it. Remember, I'm the one that said that Donald Trump could win in 216 and everybody thought that I was crazy. And the only poll that matters is the poll on election day and how the voters vote. Uh, I do believe that the ground is shifting and that a lot of people are starting to look at where this country is going. And I do believe that Democrats can and probably will keep the House. I think it could be tight. The margin could be tight. But I have a different message for voters. I'm somebody who believes we need to work together. I'm very worried about the fear and the hatred that is dividing this country, the way we are being pitted against each other. And I think the American voter needs to demand of their elected representatives, no matter what party they are, what they want them to do, that they want to see them. They're tired of political bickering, partisan fighting, that they're worried about their democracy and that they need to send a message to the people that they're voting for what they want to see in them. And I hope we see a message that says 
We want you to work together. We want you to find solutions. We're tired of just all this political rhetoric that's dividing us and getting us nowhere. We're seeing a number of Republicans backed by former President Trump winning in their state primary, some by a landslide like Harriet Hageman in Wyoming. Do you worry that those folks, should they get elected in November, and, and we'll see, um, but do you worry that those folks, should they get elected, may be even harder to work with on Capitol Hill? There's no question. We've seen uh, with some of the members, of there are very few people that I cannot get along with. I believe in respecting each other. I believe in treating each other with uh, civility, dignity. But th- there are some people that really plan on coming to Washington with the intent to disrupt. And while disruption at the right time can, I don't think any of us should be a rubber stamp and should raise issues and be um, should stand up for what's right. I think that there are some that would rather just see our government come to a halt than to really try to find answers for the American people. And that worries me. Uh, your thoughts on what could play out in the next couple of months? Or is it basically campaign season going forward? Or is there anything left that you think will be critical to get done uh, beyond funding the government be into the new fiscal year? Um, are we looking at much in terms of on the agenda? Or is a lot of the agenda really uh, taking a backseat to the midterms? Well, the midterms are obviously going to dominate. we got to get the budget passed. But quite frankly, I have some really important bills that I'm still hoping we're going to get passed. Mm -hmm. I have a major conservation bill uh, that has passed through the House that actually has 36 senators, 18 Republican, 18 Democrats supporting it. Uh, I've got a PFAS Action Act, which is addressing uh, the PFAS, which is uh, forever chemical that's building up in our bodies. So I think that there are some important issues that we still tend stand a chance of, and I'm going to work very hard to try to get past in the Congress because there are issues that impact people every single day. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of the great state of Michigan, safe travels out on the campaign trail. Thanks for your time. Have a great week. Thanks. You have a good week and be safe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. There are about two million people behind bars in the United States. America's incarceration rate is the highest in the world, although that's down from its peak in the mid-2000s. Getting out doesn't mean you're out for good. According to the Bureau of Prison Statistics, 62% of people released from state prisons are rearrested within three years. Jesse Weiss got out of prison in 2006 and stayed out after serving time for robbing a bank. When I was 21, I really found myself in a deep hole trying to figure out what life's all about, what's making this globe spin around and keeping us on it. Now he's an attorney and works with Prison Fellowship, a nonprofit organization for prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. So really just had an existential crisis um, and really just looked to the wrong places to try to fill that 
void uh, and found myself on the yielding end of a 38 caliber pistol robbing a bank in Iowa. I uh, was quickly apprehended and spent the next 10 years incarcerated. What was the arrest like? What was the trial like? I mean, how did you deal with the fact, you know, when when you were caught, you were caught sure. and you knew immediately, I assume, I don't know how much you thought about the consequences before you went into that bank, but once the handcuffs were on, you certainly knew I'm going to prison. My outlook at that point was was very nihilistic. Um, really didn't think too much about the consequences. I say all the time that most crime isn't rational. Um, and I, I hold to that statement, especially given the, the past 25 years of in this space. But yeah, when I was arrested, I was I was apprehended. It was a high speed chase. I, I walked out of the bank. Uh, there were dye packs put into the, the money that explode once you kind of walk through the front doors of the bank. And so in kind of Hollywood fashion, I'm driving high speed in a high speed chase. I have the windows rolled down because there's red dye with riot gas coming out of my car. So it was very inconspicuous <laughs> and um, being chased by the police and was apprehended. Thankfully, nobody was injured. Good. And uh, I remember driving back by the bank, the police officer doing his due diligence, uh, trying to get a confession out of me, which he was very successful in doing asking me, does this look familiar to you? And I remember asking him, how much time do you think I'll do in prison? And I remember him saying, uh, about five years. I was looking at a very lengthy sentence, like I was being interviewed by the FBI and was, you know, looking at the rest of my life, at least my adult, you know, working life, being incarcerated. Um, and that was, a, that was a hard reality looking at that. I was ultimately sentenced to 15 years, which was gracious. And ultimately, I was able to sit down with the president of the bank that I robbed and reconcile with him, uh, which, which was a phenomenal, um, or I should say, which was a catalytic part of my story that I think really kind of pushed me into the direction that I, I'm, I'm at today. So I really credit him with anything that I've ever achieved mm -hmm. to this point. You've said that, you know, you saw firsthand how prisons are really good at keeping people locked up. But for the most part, that's really just about it, right? Yeah, I think we're at a turning point in our country when it comes to prisons and, and, and kind of what does it what is a good prison. And so ultimately, the current measurement system that we use to measure success is recidivism, which is which is essentially a failure rate, which measures the rate at which people return to the criminal justice system. And to be quite honest, you know, the failure rate is fairly high, given the amount of time, energy, effort and resources that we've spent over the past 50 years in trying to tackle that problem. And me, you know, in walking through the criminal justice system, what I've realized is that the majority, the strong majority of people want to change and they want to do what's, quote unquote, the right thing. But the reality is, is that the opportunities to kind of practice the norms and the skills and character attributes that we want people to actualize in society is not available in prison. So there's this norm, there's this cultural norm that exists within prisons across the country and jails that supersedes the goal that we want. And that goal, I argue, is not just that we don't want people to return to prison, but we want people to pay their taxes. We want people to volunteer. We want people to be contributors, not just detractors or takers from our society. But what we expect is we expect people to just walk out of the prison system, which you've had to, in some cases, be reduced to just some animal tendencies they're in a constant fight or flight mode so it's time that we start to ask the question not just what is a good prison program but what is a good prison in and of itself prisons are a program when you go into the system you are going into a system 
that has a process and it has has norms and values. And so when you work through that system and you spend 10, 15, 20 years in that system, you are being trained um, and indoctrinated into that culture. And so I think the, the question I'm asking is, what is that culture? How do we measure that culture? And more importantly, how can we change it? Yeah, that was going to ask, how can we change? It? I mean, I look, you can provide classes, you can provide therapy, you can do whatever you want. But if when when it's just general population time, if it's right back to fight or flight, then I don't know necessarily what good those classes are doing you. I think that obviously that they do have some value. Well, we've seen it. We do it at Prison Fellowship all day, every day. But when I was incarcerated, I had the opportunity to participate in the Prison Fellowship Academy program, which is a program that kind of creates everybody lives in the same living unit. And so you create this place, this space for people to be vulnerable, to be a bit transparent, to create relationships and to be just what I think I would define as civil. Every taxpayer wants people to come out and never come back. And they also want to be treated fairly by those individuals. But that's what was occurring in this program space. And I just had the thought even even back then, well, what, why can't prisons be like this generally? And so I think the questions are, is the person equipped with the values and character to be a good citizen? So when a person walks into the criminal justice system and the way that they are assessed, it varies across states and across in, in, in the federal system. But ultimately, what people are looking at is they're looking at what's called criminogenic risk factors, which are essentially eight factors that have been identified through research to say, if you reduce these factors, a person is less likely to recidivate or less likely to come back to prison. Most of those factors are rooted in antisocial thoughts, attitudes, behaviors. We spent billions of dollars in this country on programs in prisons, but to what point? My question is, let's continue. Yes, programs are very important, but let's make sure we're getting the maximum ROI on those programs, and let's make sure those programs are aligned not to just a reduction of negative attributes, but to the adoption of positive attributes that we want to see people be able to practice inside prisons. You know, we know that we put in the effort, they've had the opportunity to practice those values inside that environment, and they're more likely to, to succeed when they walk out. Well, tell me about the history of Prison Fellowship. You're a vice president there now. I guess you helped design their programs. How do they? How does Prison Fellowship get into prisons? Tell me about the history of it. Tell me about the religious aspect of it. Is that an issue with some inmates? I'm asking a lot of questions, but answer them in any order you want. Sure. Yeah. Prison Fellowship, we work to restore America's criminal justice system and those it affects. We were founded in 1976 by the late Chuck Colson, who was known as uh, President Nixon's hatchet man. And we serve all those affected by crime and incarceration to see lives and communities restored in and out of prison. And we do this in a lot of different ways. We do this through criminal justice advocacy. We do this by serving the children of the incarcerated parents and families of incarcerated parents generally. Uh, the, The primary way we do this is through our prison programs across the country. Our primary goal in our prison program is to bring people, um, number one, to to see that they have potential and value, and uh, then to provide them the tools to practice that over time so that they can make it their own and then they can have a better and stronger future, which all of us, I would argue, um, in this great country would want to see people coming out of the criminal justice system achieve. Yeah, you mentioned return on investment ROI earlier. Um, is that an argument that um, you guys try to make to these people who say, "Look, we just need to be uh, tougher on crime"? You can say, "Do you make the argument?" Well, you know, you can lock them up, but unless you're going to lock them up forever, you want them to again pay taxes and 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 be a good person once they get out. 
Right. I do think it's a tension. And I, I think the tension is more of a reaction versus a response. So I think what happens is when we get violent crime, which is certainly an important conversation to have in, the, in this country and, and just at the local community level. But the issue for me is saying, well, you know, number one, I think that we always have to have this understanding of justice. What does justice require? And so when we when we throw out these, we'll just lock them up further. To me, I always have to bring it back to a justice centered equation. Well, how are we determining what justice requires here? And how do we have the freedom to just expand sentencing times just because that's what we feel like needs to happen because we don't want other people to do it. But I, I think that it, it is that tension of, of what is right, I think is the first question we need to have, what is just? And then to your point, the fact that we can get mad and, and justice can certainly require somebody to spend a significant amount of time in prison. But the reality is 95% of people in this country are going to get out. And so the question is, is, what is the actual punishment? Is going to prison and being removed from your family, being removed from society, being, re- being removed from the ability for you to make decisions, enter contracts, do anything to make a living or advance uh, your life as we all know it in this country? Is that the punishment? Or are we saying the punishment is that plus you're going to be in, a, in an environment where, you know, you could potentially suffer assault, stabbing, rape? Is that is that part of the punishment? Which we would argue that should not, at least I would argue, that should not be a consideration of the punishment. The question we're asking and, and, and trying to move forward is what kind of value does a prison have within its local community? So the reality is, is that people that work in prison have a higher suicide rate than other law enforcement personnel. So it's the highest. Why is that? And why would we tolerate that? So a lot of this prison culture pieces, they erode into the local communities. So by addressing the prison culture piece, we're, a lot, we're providing a salve to other issues in the local community. And I think once we start to ask this question, what is a good prison and how do we measure it? I think we're going to start to see some additional ROI that we haven't seen in the past. Jesse, one more question. Have you looked into, uh, does anybody else do it better than we do? Are there, are there models that, that are more successful that you've seen that could be adopted to American jails and prisons? Sure. I'm a proponent. I mean, I think that we still have the greatest criminal justice system in the world. Um, However, there's always room for improvement. Uh, I think that's what's great about this country is that we we should always be looking how we can improve the ideals that are in the Constitution um, and the rights that are afforded to the, you know, to the citizens, to our citizens. So I, I think that as it relates to the prison system, I do think that there are some very great examples that we can start to look at. So countries like Norway, which have started what's called normalization, which essentially means how prison life, can it be as normal? Can you make it as normal as it need, as it should be when it comes to the outside? So should you cook your own meals? These types of things, right? What does it look like? Can you go to work every day? And I think this concept of practice over just content. So there are, there are certainly things to look at as far as how prison is done in other countries. Jesse Weiss, uh, former bank robber. I don't know how you feel about that being tagged onto you for every interview, but I guess it did lead to what, um, what we're talking about today. Uh, also, yeah. an att- also an attorney now and uh, vice president of program design and evaluation at Prison Fellowship. Jesse, thanks for coming on The Rundown. Thank you so much. Here's a look at the week ahead. 
Monday. The U.S. and South Korea begin their biggest combined military training exercises in years. It comes as tensions remain high with North Korea, which has continued testing its missile systems. The drills will run through September 1st. Tuesday. More primaries are set as we approach the November midterms. Voters head to the polls in Florida, New York, and Guam. Wednesday. The Uvalde, Texas School Board meets to discuss the possible firing of District Police Chief Pete Arandando. Many officials say he was in charge of the police response during the mass shooting that left 19 students and two teachers dead, but he rejects those claims. Thursday. Thursday marks the start of the Federal Reserve's annual symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Members of the central bank, policymakers, economists, and others will meet to discuss economic issues and policies. Friday. Friday is the official launch date for Samsung's latest foldable Galaxy phones. Several models with folding screens will be available. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce. Tammy Bruce. What's on your mind? It made a lot of news when the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee told the New York Times editorial board recently that his party has a, quote, likability problem. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney, a Democrat from New York, isn't Einstein to realize that, but it made headlines because it's rare for a Democrat to be honest about the pathetic state of their party. The real story wasn't that Maloney was being critical or insightful about what was happening, because he's not. This matters because as Maloney was critiquing the party for style and some substance issues, he unknowingly illustrated one major reason why the Democrats are so unliked. When speaking to the Times, Maloney is quoted as saying, quote, I think that most of the voters think that we are out of touch. They think we are elitist. We think we are better than they are, and they don't like it. We have a likability problem, end quote. On this, he is correct, but it doesn't occur to him that the voters are right. He offers this up as though it's a mistaken impression, which, ironically, confirms all his assertions about the voters' opinions. For Maloney, this failure of intellect among the voting class can be cured with a patronizing change in style. He notes in the interview that Democrats, quote, could talk more like human beings. We could build a relationship with voters. Moreover, they, quote, could be more comfortable on the factory floor or at least as comfortable on the factory floor as we are in the faculty lounge, implying that empathy and interest should be feigned since it's been naturally absent. His own words exposed one of the primary reasons Democrats are not liked. They view the average person with a patronizing contempt. When asked by the Times why the Democrats were so, quote, out of sync, he mused, You'll find broad agreement in our caucus, from the conservative Democrats to the most progressive, that we have a likability problem. My answer to that is that we move really fast and we are really passionate about the solutions we want to bring. And we sometimes don't give people enough time to understand what we're doing and to bring them along. So there you have it. If people were only smarter, sharper and more cosmopolitan, they would understand what the Democrats are doing and love them for it. Yes, that's the ticket. 
As Maloney waxed on about the stylistic problems of the Democrats, he never admits the fact that their atrocious policies are destroying American lives and the security of this nation. That alone would lead people to an unfavorable opinion of your character and intentions. It is likely he does not think about their policy choices because he, like the Democratic leadership in general, genuinely do not believe that the American people understand the world around us. But we do. We feel their failures every day. We know what it is they're trying to do, and we do not want it. It's not because we're too dumb to understand. It's because we understand completely. We love the country, and we want and know we deserve a future for our children that is better than the present. We also know the Democrats are not going to see the light, but we already have. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at guybensonshow.com. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.